you're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. i got to tell you something, people. I'm really excited to have this gentleman on my show today because I was listening to Night Ranger after their first album back in 82. I was a senior in high school, and then I was growing up with MTV, and we saw the videos, and, and their drummer, Kelly, has been on my show. And this guy can jam, and they have a new album that just came out, and it's Brad Gillis. How you doing, Brad? <laughs> Doing good, Steve. Today's Tuesday, Tuesday's interview day for Jack Kelly and me, and uh, so you know, I was glad to fit you in uh, with this new record coming out. Everybody's pretty excited about it. Tell me about the record, ATBPO. Tell me about it because you guys recorded it during a pandemic, and I, I know it's a fascinating story behind it. How? When did you start recording it? Before everything shut down, or when it started shutting down? Well, uh, September of last year, so, uh, you know, almost a year ago. But we were all sitting around doing nothing, and we kind of, you know, had, we knew we had another record. We had to, to finish for Frontier, so we thought, let's try to do this, you know, during the pandemic. How are we going to do it? Well, we started out with Jack Kelly and me doing Zoom calls, and just ideas, just throwing them down. And then, you know, everybody had their own home studio. So Kelly went into, uh, Kelly, our drummer, Kelly Kagi, went into uh, a big studio and in the Phoenix area where he lives, and once we knew the arrangements, he put down the drums, and once we had that down with the basic, you know, format of the, of the arrangement, we would just pass them around, everybody's studio, and then we'd tell, do, do our own thing, so it, we never got together once, man, isn't that, it's, it's just crazy, it, but we did a whole record without getting together. Now, did you, did you miss the camaraderie? Because I'm sure when you get into the studio, there's camaraderie and there's bitching. There's both sides. I mean, you know, there's disagreements, I'm sure. But did you miss that? Did you miss that spark for of both the negative and the positive? Well, yeah. You know, we kind of came up with, I think, 16, 17 tunes. We, you know, we everybody knows what a good song is, you know. So we're able to pick the best songs. And then as far as the solos and stuff, it's like, you know, Carrie Kelly, our the guitar player, you know, we get together. It's like, ah, no, this, this style fits you better. Yeah, you know, we... We do what's best for the song, you know, and then, you know, even back in the day, the first couple of records with Jeff Watson on guitar, you know, we kind of battle it out. Who's going to play this? Who's going to play that? And then when, when we do that, Jack or Kelly would come in and say, do a harmony, do a harmony solo, do something together. So that's what happened to a bunch of tunes back then. But, uh, you know, same deal now. And, you know, we try to always keep it that Night Ranger format, which is, uh, you know, the twin guitars and harmonies and, and uh, Jack and Kelly, maybe, you know, Jack will sing a verse, Kelly do the B section coming together for the choruses. I'm usually singing the high harmony, the low harmony and the three parts. Uh, but that's kind of, that's, that's how we've always done it. And we just stick to that format. And you always want to change things up, have a different type tunes on, on a record. You know, you've got your up-tempo, mid-tempo, and a couple ballads. So we kind of just stick to that format. But um, you know when you got a good song, and you know <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> when things are happening. And if they aren't happening, you kind of move on to something else, or you change what's in that song to make it more viable for the record. How do you know? Like, is it just something that you say, okay, this is it? Or is it something that you sit there and go, this has a possibility of being a really good song? You kind of listen to it for a couple of days. You know, you you, you don't you don't judge uh, from the first listener when somebody passes to you something. You kind of listen for you know a couple of days and really get a handle on it. And that's what I like to stress to people when they listen to new records. I mean, we got a lot of reviewers that heard our new record, and most of them all have been great. But you know. 
a couple have been like, eh, I don't get it kind of thing. But, you know, I judge a record. I I take it and I listen to it when I download or something, you know, some, a band I like or whatever, and I listen to it for a couple of days, and that's when it grows on you. You either like it or you don't. Uh, first listen, you can't really judge. So, you know, I stress to people that listen to any record, you know, listen to it a few times and, and see if it grows on you, you know. So, you know, you've been around for a long time, and, you know, you come back from the time when, you know, albums albums meant something. I always talk to, you know, people like, you know, when you got an album when you were younger, you know, you looked at it and you felt it and you, you made sure it was good and all yeah. the tracks had to be good. How do you, who who's responsible for your new album, putting all the tracks together and do you argue about it? Like say, okay, you know what? Maybe this one should go here because you know as well as I do. When you listen to an album and every song's just synced, you're just feeling great. Yeah, you kind of, you know, you figure that out. Uh, you put your, Usually something fiery and up tempo first, just to get your blood going, and you always throw the ballad third or fourth, you know. And uh, but you you kind of stage it, just kind of like a, in a wave, you know. So when you're listening to the whole record, you kind of go up and down with the moods of the songs, you know. Um, you don't want to hit you too hard, and then throw down a ballad or two, and then go back up. It's like eh, you kind of bring it in waves, so it's it's kind of a tough process, but uh, it you know. We've done it for years, and it seems to work out okay. But uh, like I said, you know, you throw the ballad in there, third or fourth, uh, but and start off kicking butt, you know. Now, Breakout was the first single off that. Why did you choose that? And I want to hear about how you made the video, because video shooting has changed. You know, back in the day, video would cost you 250000 and people don't know you guys would have to pay for it out of your bonus. But how did you pick that song, and what was the video process like? Yeah, the record company picked it. We were kind of going through different, you know, ideas of what we thought should be the single. So we thought, not that it was going to be set in stone by them, but we thought, what would you, what is your thoughts on, you know, the first, the first release, second release, and you know, and they said, hey man, Breakout is so Night Ranger. Uh, I, we think that should be your first single, and then, uh, you know, uh, and so we ended up. Uh, Going to the Salton Sea, which is outside of uh, um, in, Ca- in California, out by Palm Springs, and we had this good buddy of mine who I've done work for uh, that does videos, uh, Brian Isley, come in, and he did both videos there at the Salton Sea in one day, and we did it for cheap, um, you know, and they turned out pretty good with the crazy backgrounds and stuff from the Salton Sea. The whole deal with that is. Um, the people who live there are really abstract artists and kind of wild and crazy people out there at the Salton Sea. And a lot of those people, they got the people that that make crazy stuff for Burning Man. Uh, and so a lot of the artifacts in the background of, of, of the video and stuff are artifacts and leftover stuff from, from Burning Man. But uh, <laughs> we went in cheap and did it in a day. And, you know, that's how we wanted to do it. Uh, you know, cheap and easy because, you know, videos, I mean... Whatever, we're not going to get any MTV or, you know, VH1 airplay because they don't even do videos anymore, really. But we got a lot of hits on YouTube for it. But, uh, you know, back in the day, Steve, I got to tell you, we would spend $100,000 on a video. And it would take us two 16-hour days to do a four-minute video, which is crazy. And, uh, you know, no way we're going to do that these days, and you know. 
You can film videos with your iPhone these days. Know, how, how does that make you feel? Like, you know, when you watch MTV now, and, you know, I mean, you guys, MTV helped break, you know, Night Ranger, because um, MTV sure. helped break everyone. I mean, Sister Christian, everyone knows that video. You know, you can still rock in America. Although we know those videos. But what is it like now when you put on MTV and you go, holy crap, I'm watching the Jersey Shore when it used to be like us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, man, you know, uh, I have nothing to do with that. But uh, I got to tell you, we were so lucky back in the day because when we came out, MTV just came out with their 20, you know, 4-7 format all day, all night, every day, MTV videos. And they didn't have enough content of videos to uh you know exploit all these new artists and everybody started doing videos because they knew it was a a great way to put a face to the music but they literally played our first video don't tell me love me 25 or 30 times a day because they didn't have enough content so no problem here because it put a face to the music everywhere we went people recognized us you know and we ended up doing probably a dozen videos throughout the 80s, and all of them got major airplay, and, and it really helped, uh, you know, promote the band. What is that like? What was that like? You know, you guys are a band, and, and all of a sudden MTV, you know, no one expected it. Then all of a sudden you're getting recognized everywhere you go, and you guys were a rock band, and, you know, I'm sure women were going crazy. What is that like for a young guy to sit there and go, wait a second, is, is this really happening? Uh it was a lot of fun, Steve. <laughs> you know, I don't remember much of the '80s. That means I had a good time. Yeah, no, you know, we were we were young kids, man. You know, we were doing 200, 250 shows a year uh, all over the world. Japan kicked butt in Japan, still do. Went over to Europe with Foreigner, did a bunch of shows back in the '80s. Uh, the states were great. You know, we opened up for so many great, huge bands back then. Uh, with with our records coming out, you know, uh, first record, you know, uh, Don't Tell Me Loving, then Sing Me Way, then you Still Rockin' America came out. Then we released this little ballad called Sister Christian. All of a sudden, boom, huge hit all over the place, all over radio, everywhere. And the video, stupid airplay, MTV all the time playing that. And it was time for us to go in and uh and 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 jumped to headline status so remember going in and we like designed this cool stage set up and and got our trucks together and all of our gear and started going out on tour man and headlining at late 83 84-ish right around then and i'll never forget our first show pulling into lacrosse wisconsin our first show pulling into the coliseum there and on the marquee it's like tonight night range is sold out and we were all like you know Wow, this is it, man! You know, we, we've 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 hit our you know hit a big stride here. You know, that's every rock band's dream is to headline and have a hit song on the radio, and we were there, man. And that lasted all through the '80s. And out of nine months of touring, we'd come home and go right in and do a record. Probably had probably had two weeks off a year <laughs> for the first couple of records because we were so busy. And you got to get it while it's hot, you know. Now I read I read something that on the new album. You were lucky to record at home because you could use your great guitar collection. I want to hear about your guitar collection. How many guitars do you have? Well, Steve, I, I can only play one at a time, so no, I, <laughs> I got a lot of guitars. Got a lot of amps. You can see, you know, I I collect. Uh, if you look over here, you can see I got the old uh, 
you know, Gibson amps and that, that one in the lower right-hand corner, that's a 59 baseman. The other ones are like, you know, the black face and silver face Fender amps, which are the iconic sound for so many, um, so many, uh, bands growing up and everything. But, uh, uh, I, you know, you know, I used my made red strat on a bunch of stuff. I used a 57 strat on, uh, can't afford a hero through a 65, uh, uh, Fender deluxe reverb to get that classic sound that you could hear on the ballad. I can't afford a hero. And then I used a, uh, 52, uh, Les Paul gold top on a couple things for rhythms and stuff. Just, yeah, it's got that uh, beef. Uh, but, uh, uh, what I didn't use was. My very first guitar. That was the first one ever? This is the first guitar my father bought me, my parents bought me on my eighth birthday. So check this out, man. Not many people know the story, but this is a K Vanguard 2. And I got it for my eighth birthday with the stipulation from my parents that I took lessons. So I took lessons. Then after a while, a friend of my brother's came over and said, Brad, man, you listen to the radio. You know the basic chords. Learn by ear. So I ended up learning by ear, um, which was awesome because I was you know, gotten club bands after that. And, and I was able to listen to songs on the radio and just pick things up by ear. When I joined Ozzy Osbourne, I, I had a live uh, cassette with Randy Rhodes on it before his tragic you know death. And and I, I learned by ear his solos in, in four days and did my first show. But it really helped me out uh, learning by ear. But what I was getting at, this K Vanguard 2, I sold it when I was 12. I got it when I was 8. I sold it when I was 12 at a penny market. And it was gone. I remember watching the guy walk away with it. I got $25 for it. I remember that. And because my dad was a pilot, he went over to Germany and brought me back a, a Hofner, uh, an ES-335 Gibson uh, copy. So I started playing that, so I sold this K. Anyway, being a guitar collector, I go to a lot of guitar shows. And there's a, me and the baby be in the in the Bay Area. I went to this uh, guitar show in Marin County called the... Uh, um, uh, what is it? Anyway, every year, two times a year, they have guitar shows. Everybody brings their guitars and stuff. And, and I had a booth, uh, and I would buy and sell, trade, do, do fun stuff, you know, just my passion. And I was walking around to other people's booths, and I saw this guitar, and, and I went to the owner guitar showcase, and I, uh, I said, Gary, this looks like my original guitar. Where you, where'd you get it? And he goes, Brad, man, I. I probably got that 35, 40 years ago, and it's been up in the rafters at my store, you know, untouched for, you know, 40 years. Uh, and the only reason I, I brought them out and I'm selling all these old, cheap, eclectic guitars because people were buying them and they're vintage and, and some of them have a cool sound, right? I said, Gary, I think this might be my original guitar. And, and, and I go, can I take it back to my booth and check it out? He says, sure. So I take it back and I and I text my sister. I go, I, I might have found my original guitar. Can you find the picture of me playing it? I think when I'm 10 years old and I'm playing it or whatever. She sent it to me. And the wear on the knobs were exactly the same, right? And I started getting that, you know, that feeling like you know, just won a lottery. You know, oh, my gosh, you know. And then there was a ding. There's a ding on the bottom corner of it right here. This little ding, right? You can't see it anyway. But but on the picture, when I magnified the picture and looked at it, I saw the ding down there. It matched up. And I realized this is my guitar. So I went back to Gary, and he sold it to me for half price. And this is like five, six years ago. So I got back my original guitar, my first guitar that I ever owned. What made you want to pick up the guitar? What was it that... The Beatles... The, the Rolling Stones, the Animals, 
uh, you know, my brother is seven years older than me. He had a good friend who played in a band called the Bull Bromels. And he was a guitar player. And he'd come over and, you know, and I'd go watch them at rehearsal. You know, when I was a little kid, my brother, he's seven years older than me, right? So so he was into all this, you know, cool stuff when he was 15, 16. And uh, then the Beatles came out. And it's like, I want a guitar, you know. I want a guitar. My, like, you know, like, you know, my my mom and dad said you know my mom played keyboard and sang around the house so it was kind of a musical house and then my brother had all the cool records so um you know like this they said you know if you take lessons we'll get you this guitar so uh my eighth birthday i got the the k guitar and a k amp i don't like i don't know where the amp is i wouldn't even know anything about that i don't even have a picture of me with the amp but the cool thing was uh you know when i was growing up in the late late 60s uh i was like you know 12 13 years old um my brother would have all the greatest records albums at that time. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, you know, Led Zeppelin, uh, The Doors, Big Brother and the Holding Company, all the latest, coolest records back then in the whole hippie era, right? And he'd go out every night, and he was an electronic engineer, as even in high school, and he built me this little preamp in a box. He took me out of the record player, went into the box, I plugged my guitar into the box, had an had a preamp in there and a knob on it and an output that went to headphones so i was able to plug my guitar in get a distortion sound mix the record player with what i was listening to my brother go out every night and i'd sit in his room and i just try to figure out all this you know these great songs and i was and uh, but i was i was dedicated man that's all i ever did you know come home from school play guitar until dinner and then play tomorrow until they had to go to bed and get up the next morning and, and go to school, come back to the same thing. On the weekends, I play, you know, all the time. I, I had my first band when I was 10 and uh, called the Invaders and, and played rock bands all through high school. And, and uh, the great thing was when I graduated high school, there was an opening for a guitar player in this band uh, called Arm and & Hammer. And uh, they needed a guitar player. And I was only 18, fresh out of high school. But when they heard me play, they said, wow, we got to get you in the band, but you're too young. you got to be 21 or over to play in, in nightclubs. So I was able to play in nightclubs and learn all this stuff in 75, 76, everything from the disco crap, everything that came out, uh, you know, learning how to play, you know, funky, clean tone ninth chords to, you know, stuff that was popular, uh, you know, uh, um, Bad Company and Skinner and everything else that came back then that we were playing live and and playing five nights a week, five nights a week really got me uh, uh, honed in for my future endeavors, you know. Now, you have a great memory about your career. Do you remember the first time you heard a Night Ranger song on the radio? Yeah. I had the cassette in my Datsun pickup, and I had been playing it, uh, the cassette, pretty much, you know, all the time, you know, and then I get to listen to it because we just finished it, and everybody got a cassette. <laughs> and I got in my truck, and I was going somewhere, and, you know, I uh, started driving, turned on the radio, you know, on the radio, and, and Don't Tell Me Love Me was on it. And, and I went, you know, and I looked down at the cassette, and it wasn't pushed in. And I, uh, and I I pull it out, and I'm going, wait a minute, we're on the radio, and it blew me away, dude, it blew me away. Now, you're back on the road, and I know as performers, it must, it must have been hard when you didn't know when you could go back on the road. What is it like? I mean, now that you've 
you know, you perform, your guys are great in concert, but when you're away from it, when you come back, is it that much sweeter because it's like all of a sudden you can't have it and now you can. What is that like? Well, uh, this band always, uh, you know, we always love to play live and uh, it never gets old and people say, hey man, is it getting old? You know, you're playing Sister Christian 3,000 times in your career, you know, that's probably how many live shows we've done and it's like, it's like, no, it doesn't, because every venue is different. Every crowd is different. Uh, you know, they're, they're digging it, loving it, singing along. And, and, and it's exciting to play, just to play live. And, uh, you know, you got Jack Blades up there, a little firecracker running around going crazy. And, you know, and, and, and Kerry Kelly, our latest guitar player, well, he's been with us for six, seven years now. But, you know, a lot of energy. And, 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 and so it's still fun to play live. Uh, it's a crazy situation right now, and who knows, things may shut down. But, uh, you know, every day, one day at a time. Now, after this album, what do you foresee as Night Ranger's future? Do you plan to do another album down the road, or do you want to sit there and do some no, solo stuff? No, we do we, we, we do an album every couple a couple years, so it's going to be a couple years. But, but, you know, we got the Kiss Cruise coming up. We got Summerfest coming up. We got we got Japan coming up next year. We got opening for Guns N' Roses at the Sweden Rock Festival next summer. Uh, we got a lot of big, huge stuff coming up. We lost our Sammy Hagar Whitesnake Night Ranger tour last summer. We had 42 amphitheater shows booked last summer. That all got shut down because of COVID. But we have a lot going on. I just don't know what's the future is with COVID, you know. What is it, real quick, what is it like in Japan? Because I've heard the fans in Japan are, they go crazy. They Um, just, they love their music. What was it like for you guys through your whole career? Because you probably blew up big there younger and they've loved you ever since. Yeah, you know, at our heyday, we did Budokan, kind of like, you know, Cheap Trick. We did two Budokans. Uh, We go back there now. We play at this 4,000-seater in Tokyo. We do three nights. Uh, Then we go to Osaka, Nagoya, Fukuoka, wherever they want us, which is usually everywhere. Uh, We've always been popular there, sell a lot of records. The food's amazing. The shopping's amazing. The people are respectful. Uh, You know, it was crazy. The first time I went there and played, first time I went there was with my brother my father, who was a pilot, Flew my brother me to, to Tokyo, dropped us off, and went and flew around. My brother and I went to the Honda factory, went to uh, Mount Fuji, rode the bullet train. Awesome. Awesome. I was 13, 14 years old. But then I went back with Ozzy, played, played for the first time there, and everything sold out crazy. The food was amazing. Mr. Udo, Udo Artists, the people, the company that, that booked us, that bringing us over there for decades. Well, they've been gracious, put us up at great hotels, first class in the bullet train. Um, take us to his we have a big dinner after we finish all of our shows come back to tokyo do go out to this amazing dinner with shabu shabu and and you know the kobe beef and you know they they give you these big huge rocks they put these rocks in an oven and and they heat them up to where they're almost bread and they put them on your table and you take this real thin beef and you lay them on the rocks and you cook it yourself and dip it in these fabulous sauces so can't wait to go back Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Brad. People, go check out NightRanger.com. Go see them in concert. They kick ass. Go listen to their albums. Go buy their albums. Buy their new album. Go. You can find their video online. Uh, So check out Night Ranger. I'm Steve Cooper. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 865 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. (laughs)